This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the City of New York. I'm joined today by Dr. Gordana Vonjek Novakovic, University Professor and Makati Foundation Professor at Columbia University, and one of Columbia's most prolific scientist entrepreneurs, having founded startups such as Tara Biosciences, Epibone, Implicate, and others out of her lab. We'll be talking with her today about how her lab is working on repairing and growing new human organs. The virtuous cycle created between discovering new platform technologies and research tools, which lead to new insights into fundamental biology, which lead to even more platform technologies and research tools, and also how she balances her life as a university research scientist on one hand and a serial entrepreneur on the other. Dr. Vanyak Novakovic, thank you for joining us today. If, if you wouldn't mind, maybe let's start off with the basics. Can you tell me a bit about the work in your lab in layperson terms? What are the general themes of your research and what got you interested in them in the first place? Yeah, thank you, Orin, for this conversation. So my laboratory for stem cells and tissue engineering is working on tissue engineering approaches for repairing our organs that can be damaged by either injury or disease. And the systems we work in include bone and heart and lung. We also make micro-sized tissues, very small tissues of different kinds that we link by vascular flow to study diseases and enable drug development using human tissue models. So repairing or making new organs and bone and also helping to make it easier to discover new drugs that work on various diseases. It's pretty amazing. How do you do that? So how do we do that? Um, these two different areas of application, regenerative medicine and organs in a chip, are really based on the same fundamental principle, which is that we instruct the cell how to make a real human tissue by using two tools. One is the scaffolding material or matrix that would define the form and architecture of the forming tissue. And uh, the other one is a culture system that we call bioreactor that provides the cells with the environment they need to build the tissue. If we were to walk into your lab and see someone working on a scaffold and also using a bioreactor, what do these look like? How big are they? Um, <laughs> is someone hunched over a microscope or is it the size of a desk or a room? Like, what do these look like? It, 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 it's a very broad range because when you work um, in regenerative medicine space, for example, we repair a whole human lung. So you have a whole lung outside the body being perfused and ventilated and repaired using different bioengineering technologies. So this is the size. It's about like one foot high. Um, uh, if you are modeling diseases, then you have micro-sized tissues, let's say a millimeter in size that are real, but they are very, very small. There are different types of tissues. So for example, you would connect liver and lung and bone and heart and sometimes tumor tissue. If you're studying cancer, they are linked by vascular perfusion in a physiologically meaningful way. So you're focused on modeling physiology and disease. So at this point, you have stem cell-based versions of our own organs on a single chip with blood flowing through them, so it's circulating. And by putting all of those organ systems on a single chip, you can use that for, for testing drugs or for modeling new drugs. How does that, what's the benefit of having all of those on, on one chip? 
But people call organs on a chip are really not organs on a chip. These are small pieces of tissue that are placed on a platform that really looks like a computer chip. So therefore the name. Uh, the purpose of this is that you're trying in the simplest possible way to recapitulate functionalities of our organs. And this was the main driver. The whole idea was initiated by the National Institutes of Health some seven or eight years ago, when they asked the entire community, tissue engineering, stem cells, tissue engineering community, can we do better? Can we have more predictable uh, preclinical models of human diseases that we can use to test the new medicines more safely and de-risk their translation into the patients. The stem cell technology, especially the so-called IPS, induced pluripotent stem cells that we routinely derive from small samples of blood, they allow you to make a patient on a chip. So all these tissues are derived from the same individual. And you can imagine that this is really giving you opportunity to study the diversity of the disease uh, from one patient to another because the progression of disease and the uh, treatment modalities really very much depend on your race, on your sex, on your age, on the overall state of health or disease. If I'm a patient and I'm thinking about the ways this might impact me in the future, if you're diagnosed with the disease and there's a variety of different medicines which might work for you but might not work for you, rather than having to do what many patients have to do of cycling through different med medications and finding out by trial and error which ones work and which ones don't, hypothetically, because it's your own organs on that chip, you can actually now test the drug uh, in your essentially in your own organs on the chip instead of having to do it in your own body. Is that the general idea? Yes. And maybe a good example is cancer that we are actively studying in a collaboration with a number of people at Columbia. So um, uh, cancer is known after its heterogeneity. It means it varies from patient to patient. But even more importantly, uh, it varies within the same patient. Not all cancer cells in a any individual tumor are the same. And you have the situation that actually some patients are responding to treatments very effectively, the others do not. We don't understand well enough what are the checkpoints, what are the targets that you really need to affect by, medi by medications. And in particular, what are the cell populations that would be metastatic? Because metastasis is what really kills most cancer patients. It's not the primary tumor in many cases. And um, for a long time, there was a belief that actually the most actively proliferating cells are the most dangerous one, ones. But actually, the cancer biologists and oncologists are learning today that it is really these are other populations of the cells that are sort of quiet and sneaky, and they're the ones making problems. So understanding this in culture systems is incredibly important. It, it is becoming possible by building these models. So just imagine that you have, uh, say, prostate cancer cells or breast cancer cells that we obtain from pathologists at Columbia, and we put them into the circulation, and they are allowed to get 
in contact with many different organs. So what we are seeing is that the cells that incline to go into the bone to make metastasis in a whole organism also prevalently go into the bone in our platform. So this is just one example, but you can, we are also studying fibrosis, which is a universal problem of many, many organs from heart to lung to liver, uh, skeletal tissues, etc. We are studying inflammation, congenital diseases, for example, of the heart. So it's really sky is the limit, but the requirement for this kind of research is very close organic collaboration between people from different disciplines. There is no way that any specialty of science and engineering uh, or uh, clinical disciplines could make um, could make it to the finish line um, alone. This is the problems that are too complex for any, they really transcend any of the disciplines that you can take off. What's it like to do this kind of work here at Columbia? Is this a collaborative environment for you? Oh, absolutely. This is actually one of the main reasons why I came from the Boston environment to this environment. Uh, Columbia is really highly collaborative. So barriers between the disciplines and departments are very low. For me, it was uh, incredibly easy to find people that uh, with, with whom you can discuss your ideas, who can help you. It is not, um, many people think it is mostly about sharing methods and resources. I, I think much more important is to just share concepts. Much of our work is really inspired and driven by the clinical need. So you start from uh, talking with clinicians to understand where the needs are and how they need to be addressed. Both is very important. It is important that you really target something that's a real need in, in, in a clinical practice, not a second-rate problem. But it is also important that you address this problem in a way that will be accepted by the clinicians. So these first conversations are incredibly important. Then you go to the bench and you start to, to work on the solution of this particular problem. So one example is we started the entire lung research by the visit of our lung transplant surgeons from Columbia who told us that they face daily crisis of insufficient number of lungs that are the only curative option for many patients with end-stage disease. And they explained what the problem is and we came together to an idea how to find a solution, which is not to make lungs, which we cannot do, which we may not be able to do for a very long time now, but to repair lungs that they are daily rejected for transplant. So problem definition. But even when we work in lab on the solution, we work with them. So this is really all along a collaborative effort. And once we come to to a conceptual solution, we develop technology, the first prototypes, then we go back into implantation, obviously first through clinical sized uh, animal models, but then keeping inside the eventual clinical application. So Columbia really gives you this. It's not only that we have all this 
phenomenal people in schools and disciplines under the same roof, so this is the same system, it is that these people just uh, feel and see the necessity of working together, because together we can really come much further. And I believe that the most exciting things in science today are really happening at the interfaces of disciplines, you know, not like at the heart of any single discipline. So Columbia is really a great place for for uh, for biomedical research. I'm going to pick up on the thread of the idea of the, both the collaboration and also you mentioned methods and tools. I'm in the middle of reading Walter Isaacson's new book, The Code Breakers, about the advancements that related to and led to uh, the CRISPR revolution in gene editing. And one of the things that jumps out to the reader, or at least to me, is the way that broad discoveries and our basic understanding of biology lead to new tools and techniques and machines, in some cases, for interrogating that biology, and then how these new tools and techniques turn into platforms that lead to even more fundamental biological understandings, but also things like new startup companies, new clinical therapies from biopharma, et cetera. So I'm wondering, when you think about your work, uh, what parts of what you do depend on things that may not even have existed five or 10 or 20 years ago? And sort of how rapid is the pace of that evolution over the course of your career? It, it, it's incredible, like uh, many, many methodologies that we use today, many concepts, many methodologies, they, they just haven't existed. You can look into specific examples like tissue engineering just started about 20, 25 years ago. Uh, the human stem cells that are really the backbone of everything we do today, where adult human stem cells were really um, derived by Yamanaka just a few years ago. So, so we are really talking about huge changes at the scale of maybe five years rather than 20 years. And I think the progress is accelerating. And this has many, many implications. So one implication is that the discovery in biology and sciences in general is inspiring the development of new tools and new technologies. But then these new tools and technologies help us build better models and learn more about the biological questions. And so you you really start this perpetual cycle of this discovery and implementation. Speaking of that sort of perpetual cycle of innovation, I think one of the things that has been most striking to me in working with you over the last 15 years at Columbia is how prolific you've been at launching startups out of your lab. So that finding these innovations and working them within your laboratory, but also recognizing when it's time to let those innovations leave the lab and get out into the commercial world so they can be developed into products. But also not just knowing when the right time is to let those go, but then also to manage to balance your life within the university and also still stay involved to some degree in these companies that have launched. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the role that you personally play in these startups and how do you balance that with your university teaching and research and all the other amazing things you do? I think we are seeing, you know, at, at Columbia Technology Ventures, our office, we're seeing the number of startups launching out of the university have grown from around five or six a year when I joined in 2006 or so to 15, 20, or even 30 a year now. And so I think there's many faculty who are trying to figure out how to get the kind of balance that you've managed to find. 
I think uh, most of us feel that being in academia is really a lifestyle. This is not a job. So you are very passionate about what you do. And you always think about new ideas and how to use these ideas to the benefit of the society. So it's really not difficult to have a balance of research and entrepreneurship because they are so organically connected. And this comes into the picture, especially in biomedical sciences and engineering. One thing I learned from my mentors that I'm pursuing myself is that the most important thing is to get the best people you can and encourage them to dream big and to pursue their own ideas, rather than telling them how to specifically approach the project they're working on. I think that this is important for several reasons. First, in this case, you have an intellectual ownership of the idea, and this totally changes the way you feel about your research, because you love what you do. This is your own idea, you're working on it. Second, this helps our students and postdocs train for independent career and make this very difficult transition from solving problems to asking questions. And finally, this is the reason why many of our students and postdocs choose to also become entrepreneurs and bring to life the technologies they developed in lab uh, by working in companies. And looking into the companies that um, I launched with my students so far, this formula applies to each of them. So you have a talented one or more students postdocs who develop something during their research in lab. And they typically go, they are getting ready for a transition to academic career. Some of them, even for example, in Epibon case, they started to interview for faculty position. Company came into the picture and they just realized that their call is really to run the company that is commercializing their technology. And we have this in every single of these four companies that we have so far, we have the same approach. So there is IP filed, research published, companies launched, and then these key people move to the company in some leadership capacity, CSO, CSO, CEO, uh, to run the company and to really make this uh, product or technology a reality. I think this is really important. This also totally defines the culture of the company. It maybe also describes some of the culture that I'm trying to establish in the lab, which is this like encouraged independence to the maximum extent that is comfortable for any, um, any person in the lab. Since you've launched so many companies so far during your time at Columbia, anything you can share with other faculty researchers on what the culture of entrepreneurship and commercialization is like at Columbia? Have you found yourself, uh, you and your team encouraged to pursue this path? Absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's Columbia, and I'll talk a little about CTV as a critical component of Columbia. So the culture of Columbia, but also uh, the New York City. I think both of this. Um, 
uh, I see New York City as a kind of world in small because we have this incredibly diverse population of people that gives us opportunity to first learn about where the societal and medical needs are and then to develop and test the right solutions. Uh, I'm thinking about this in the context of engineering for health, but this approach can be applied to almost any aspect of of our life. New York is also a hub of science and technology, and it has an incredible wealth of resources for conducting science and for making it available to the practitioners. So now about Colombia, we already talked about this culture of collaboration. Now I would just like to highlight the support for entrepreneurship. So uh, CTV at Columbia is one of the best things we have for sure. And it has been instrumental in enabling uh, many of us to pursue commercial applications of the scientific findings and technologies from our labs. A CTV helps us at every step of the way, from filing IP, advertising it, protecting it, to licensing patents to our startups and to other companies. It provided on several occasions seed funding for testing some of our ideas for doing this killer experiment that really tells you if you should proceed or not. And it has been supporting the launch and also the well-being of our com companies. I mean, I really cannot be more grateful for all the support that I have received as I started to work with CTV uh, literally the first month after I uh, uh, moved to Colombia. So the level of passion you bring to this, I mean, you clearly care so deeply about the science. And as you mentioned, it's, you know, it's a lifestyle. It's one that seems to just envelop, envelop the scientists. Is, is your home life, like when you're home with your kid, and, and uh, I, was it a household that was filled with like test tube kits and, you know, science kits at home and going to science camp? Um, is everyone in your family a scientist? Yeah, actually, we have a mix. We have a mix. I mean, in, in, in my family, when I was a kid, I mean, this was really a mix. My father was an engineer. My mother was a lawyer. We had like a number of um, doctors, uh, clinicians in family, musicians, uh, artists, architects. I mean, it was really a mix. And then uh, the, uh, what, what was happening in my childhood uh, uh, was that our parents are just trying to uh, expose us to as many opportunities and experiences as possible so we can really figure out what we want to do in life. And I continue to do this the two of us continue to do it with our son and then you know it 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 goes further with his family etc uh, we don't really know it's very rare that someone knows at a very young age with certainty this is what i really really want to do or become when i grow up as you said so so you need to you need to try you need to test different situations and experiences and then it will click so I think these opportunities that you that you that you try some new things that you recognize that there may be like a new frontier waiting for you and your very specific set of abilities get engaged in this new frontier. This is, I think, very important. So, so does that and imply that does that imply that when you were growing, I mean, you you've been 
your your scientific career has obviously been quite quite long and impressive. But it was was there an alternate life that you envisioned for yourself when you were young? Like, did you always know you were going to be a scientist, or did you think, gee, I want to I'm going to be an astronaut or a politician? Or... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I never wanted to be to be either astronaut or politician. Uh, uh, I actually uh, I, I always wanted to be scientist of some kind, and I wanted to be to be more precise engineer of some kind, because I really loved what my father was doing. He was a very creative person. He was you know developing things, and uh, I always thought that I would like to do something that will have a practical use. Uh, at that time, biomedical engineering has not existed. So, I mean, options were a little bit more limited. He was chemical engineer. I thought that he had great um, foundation for what he was doing. So I sort of went by default to chemical engineering. This is what I studied. My other option and my really long-term love was medicine, but I, 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 I thought that I didn't have ability. I didn't have stomach for medicine. So I just decided I cannot do that. But I was always interested in medicine. And all the time I was thinking, is there any way that I connect something that I'm that I studied, uh, which is chemical engineering with my other love, medicine. And this was actually what I was searching when I went to Boston for a year after getting my PhD to see, is there a way to do that? And this is where I really was extremely fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and to meet the person who was just launching an entirely new field that was called tissue engineering. And this is when it clicked. I really didn't know that this is what I was looking for, but it is like beauty, you know, when you see it, you know this is it. So when I realized what is he trying to do, which is to make tissues in laboratory so that we can study them and better understand them and make them in a form of fashion uh, and fashion that can be useful for regenerative medicine, that can be useful clinically to repair our tissues and organs. I was like absolutely fascinated. I mean, this was this aha moment that I will never forget. forget. So this uh, stay in Boston was absolutely, truly transformative for my work. And I just, this is what I was you know, I started to work in tissue engineering and then never stopped. And this is what I'm doing up to today. And I think this is an absolutely most fascinating way to, you know, to pursue science. Right. So, uh, so this is what happened. So I, I, I think it was, again, I was trying, looking into many different things and then just this, you know, like this curiosity, this inquiry, like uh, this is really important so that you just search and search and search until you find something that you love doing. Because if you love what you do, then everything else takes care of itself. Mm. I mean, you're really happy, you're passionate about it, you are able to attract a young talent to work with you, you're able to help them, you know, things just work uh, work uh, work very nicely if this main condition is uh, is met. Yeah. So so you mentioned that your family, in addition to being a family of of scientists and, and engineers, that there was a, a music in the arts. Um, is that still a part of your life? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm just not a talent. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I played music. I loved writing. I still love writing. I just enjoy, you know, we often complain like, oh my God, it's proposal deadline. I hate it. We don't hate it. This is an intellectual experience second to none. I mean, you just sit and you, you know, you communicate your ideas. So I love writing. I love also verbally communicating to people. But I was very realistic in the way I'm not a talent. I cannot succeed. I would be just very mediocre in either profession. And um, so I was trying to find something where I can be good. <laughs> and then I like that, like very, I mean, I always loved math. I loved uh, uh, sciences. I was going as in high school on all this like national competitions that also exist in the United States in different disciplines. I took like the first prize in chemistry at, in the year when I was graduating from high school, the prize in biology the year before. So, so, so I was doing what I could, you know, but then, um, that our parents are telling us just be whatever you want you can be whatever you want but try to look for something where your personality your passion your abilities are really going to come to a really good use when you can be really good and then i realized it's engineering you know it's not classical music i mean we are subscribed to opera we go you know i'm a music lover but i i i couldn't be a musician right. that's not good so. so out of out of curiosity when you um when you're writing your grants and you've got music playing in the lab or under headphones um yeah. what are you listening to i mean <laughs> i like music in general but actually the two types of music that i really love is uh, is a classical music of all kinds and i love uh, rock music from the say late 70s and 80s so this is when i was growing up so i mean i would i would look to to the rock bands from the past some of which are still playing like rolling stones so it's this combination of music uh -huh. so different kinds of music i think anything but country maybe <laughs> I, I like jazz. I like jazz. I like chanson. I like uh, it's. It's just we have at home. We have like I don't know thousands and thousands and thousands pieces of music that we continuously. So it's always music around us. You know, we are just immersed in that. So music and books. I think these are like the two media that are very very present in in our lives. Uh, okay. Well, then I've got to ask. Favorite book. Anything you'd recommend? Oh, oh, this is this is an easy one, <laughs> and I think you'll be surprised. It's not a science book. Uh, my favorite book is the Alexandria Quartet. So this is a book written by Lawrence Darrell. This is, I believe, one of the greatest books of the twentieth century, and this is the book that I've been returning to for, I think, more than twenty years. Like every year or so, I just reread it. So it's a, it's a book about Alexandria. This is a magnificent city and um, about its inhabitants. And what I love about this book that it's almost mathematically constructed. So it has three novels about three individuals, Justine, Balthazar, Montolive, that are written in a way that they reflect the depth, the breadth, and the length, as, 
as dimensions. And then there comes the fourth book on Clea, the fourth individual, which is adding time, just getting everything together. So <laughs> the book is really not moving in time. I always think about this book as like an object which is turning slowly around its axis. And then in book one, two, three, and four, you just see in each of them one of the sliding planes that form the whole pattern. So you reread the book four different times. And um, that's really interesting. I, I, I'll have to give that a try. I only know of um, of Larry Durrell, the author, from being a, a one of the main characters in his brother's book. Um, my family yeah. and other animals um, <laughs> about animals. their time on yeah, curfew, yeah. which is a fantastic book. But I actually had never yeah. picked up. Um, you know, his older brother is such a character in the novel, and I, I hadn't picked up his own novel. To no, read no. This is this is this is an absolutely wonderful book about things that matter in our lives, and uh, I think you should give it a try. Which is a it is a summer book. It's a very thick book. <laughs> Got it. I, I think you would like it. Got it. Dr. Vundrik Novakovic, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Arin. It's always a pleasure to stay with you.